Well, we like to do it. We like to make a name for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. But God has a problem with that. We'll talk about that. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembert. I'm Janice. And this program is called Bible Discovery TV, where that's what we're doing. We are discovering the Bible. And today we're going to be teaching on Genesis chapter 11 in about five minutes. It's going to be very interesting about this languages and all of that. Where did that come from? We'll talk about that. Corey is here. Corey? We're going to try to understand the patriarchal society that we read about in Genesis. Ryan? Today we read about the aftermath of the great flood of Noah's day. And it was this global event that was the subject of a great geological debate in 19th century Britain. We're going to talk about it later on in the program. Okay, very good. Very good. Janice? Building the right foundation. All right, so get your Bible guide out, turn to today's passage. Let's open up the Word of God and listen to what the Lord is telling us. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city, and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech." So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Well, it's interesting as we continue to go through the Bible, we land in Genesis 10, Genesis 11, Genesis 12, and Genesis chapter 13. Now, have you ever wondered about languages? Think this through for me. What does that mean? Where do we get them all? Languages are fascinating. Some pursue an education specializing in linguistics to better know and understand how language works. But the question remains, why do we have so many languages in the world? It's a good question. To find the answer for that, we go back to the scripture. The Bible says that there was a time on earth when men spoke and women spoke the same language, all of us. And they had great pride and ambition for their own abilities and began to rebel against God Almighty. They devised plans to make a name for themselves on earth. And even believing that they could build towers that reached up to the heavens, they started to build one. God's response to their rebellion 
was to create chaos among them by simply confusing their languages. It is not unlike some of what we are seeing today. Now, the one world government movement is based on human thinking at, at the core of its ideas. The idea of creating a way for mankind to succeed on its own without God. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we know that the only true success that we can gain in life is when we pay attention to and follow after God Almighty. Now, this means we give control of our lives over to Jesus Christ. We were not created to be in control, but for a loving relationship with the living Lord who helps us to, to have self-control as we follow him. Now, self-control, that's a really interesting idea, isn't it? We don't see a lot of self-control in today's world, let me tell you. But that's fascinating. And today we study about languages in Genesis chapter 11. Take your Bible guide, turn there with me. If you don't have one, you can write to us or you can call us or you can go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com. When you go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com, click on the page and you will see it takes you to a place where you can make donations. I want to say thank you so much for your donations. They truly help us. And that's the way we survive, by your donations. Nobody helps us except you. So praise God for that. And uh, let's focus our attention on this scripture and learn from it today. Father, I pray today in the name of Jesus Christ, that we would hear what your word says. Because if we don't listen We'll just read it and it'll be interesting. But Lord, I think if we listen, we will hear your Holy Spirit speaking to us today. And Father, that's what we need to hear. Touch the people who don't believe in you, who are watching, who are perhaps mocking or whatever, doesn't matter. But Lord, help them speak to their heart and touch them today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we judge us on I believe in Jesus, so therefore I'm like this or I'm like that. Before you do any of that, just consider the Bible. Just consider what the Word of God says. Here is what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 11. It says, Now the whole earth had one language, one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. That's a language that is used to describe the land where Babel is. And they dwelt there. And then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Scattered abroad? Didn't Jesus say, be fruitful and multiply and go on the earth? Isn't that what he said? We often like to make a name for ourselves in this world. We do. As believers in Jesus Christ, God calls us to build his kingdom wherever we live. Where do you live? Where do I live? Wherever we live, God's called us to build his kingdom, not to build our kingdom, beloved. So 
We need to build God's kingdom. But they didn't. Now, God had a response to that. Listen carefully. Genesis 11 verse 5 says, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Sons of men, notice that. Sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and confuse their languages that they may not understand one another's speech. God uses language and cultural differences to shake us up. God helps us learn to love one another, no matter our differences. I mean, you know it and I know it. It's easy to hang around the people you like. That's easy. It's easy to be friendly to people who are friendly to you. But let me tell you something. What did God say? He said, love your enemies. He said, love those who you think are your enemies. Love each other. Learn from each other's culture. Beloved, that's what we have to do. We have to learn from each other's culture. That's very important. And that's what God was trying to get them to do. Now, they didn't. So what does God do? Well, we go back. Genesis 11, verses 8 and 9. And this is what it says. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth. And they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there is because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth, which brings me to this point. God scattered the people all over the earth for our own good. <laughs> uh, he did it that way. The Lord is always at work in our lives. We should live to serve him at all times. Beloved, that's exactly what God says. And I want to say that I love different cultures. I love it. Uh, I traveled when I was 17 years old around the world and I learned so much. But I want to tell you that it's important for us to understand that we are not to just take the people that we're comfortable with and run with them. But we're to learn from other languages. We're to learn from other people. This is so important for the believer. And I, I, I need to pray that, that God will help us as people who love Jesus Christ to learn how to love other people. And Father, I pray that in Jesus' name. We as uh, believers, we tend to like only ourselves, and that's the computer helps us do that with social media and everything else. But Lord, help us to hear even the people that we don't necessarily care for Help us to hear them. And there are many who love you and are Christian. Help us to learn what it means to love them. And Father, I pray that the Christians today would expand our horizon by opening up to different cultures. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.
So even just getting up to Genesis 10 to 13, which is where we are in our reading today, we can see that our modern Western culture is fundamentally different than the culture we see represented in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament here. We're separated by time, distance, custom, and structure. In the modern West, we've endowed our governments or states with considerable responsibility and the power to enact those responsibilities on our behalf. The government regulates, aids, and protects. Biblical Israel, on the other hand, was a part of the ancient Near East, whose societal structure was instead based around the family. It was a tribal and patriarchal system. So this means the responsibility for the economic, legal, and physical security of the family was entrusted to the oldest male member of each family or household. He regulated, aided, and protected. Extended families lived together in order to survive. They would grow their own food, in crops and animals. They shared the responsibilities of harvest, grinding grain, making clothing, and all the daily necessities of life. In Israel, it's believed that multiple individual family homes for couples and their children would be built around a central courtyard, enabling up to 30 close relatives, so a patriarch and matriarch, their children and spouses, and their children, to live and work together. And when the family grew too large, it would split and become two family units. We even see this reflected in Lot needing to leave Abraham's family once his became too big. So this arrangement, as well as the physical family itself, was referred to as the father's house, reflecting the responsibility given to and the authority expected from the oldest male member of the house, the father. This makes sense of the custom of the firstborn's inheritance that's also seen in the Bible. The firstborn son of a father would one day become the patriarch himself, responsible in every way for the survival and morality of his other family members. This is why the firstborn was given a double inheritance. Rather than it being an emotional favor of sorts, this practice prepared the son with the physical resources he would need to care for the family. The societal structure also makes sense of why people were identified as the son of their father, as your legal, moral, and social standing depended on him, and he was responsible for your actions, whether good or bad, he had a societal obligation to take care of your needs, to protect you, and to spend family resources when necessary to get you out of trouble. Male members of the household were expected to always stay with the family, while women would switch allegiances. When they married, they would integrate into their husband's family, becoming a member of his or his father's house. And therefore, her societal and physical protection and moral accountability would be transferred to that patriarch. Now, this system worked for family units, but it did leave some members of society particularly vulnerable, mainly foreigners, widows, orphans, and divorced women. For women whose husbands divorced them, they would be expected to return to their father's family or whomever was currently its patriarch. The bride price that her ex-husband had paid to her father or brother would then hypothetically have made up for her financial needs. Foreigners, widows, and orphans were also particularly vulnerable in this system. Without a larger safety net of family, they could be left without a means of provision and almost no hope of acquiring provision in the future. 
these vulnerabilities explain the custom of leveret marriage or brother marriage that we see appear in the Bible as well. If a woman was widowed without having a child but was of childbearing age, her dead husband's brother would take her into his household so that she would have immediate provision and would have a son with her that would bear his dead brother's name. This ensured that that woman would also have future provision as the child would inherit their legal father's estate. It also explains the Bible's legislation in the Mosaic Law that's meant to protect the foreigner, widow, and orphan. Without an overseeing state to protect them, they were the most vulnerable. How amazing it is then that God actually identifies himself as their protector. It's worth noting also that just because the Bible shows God working in this type of society doesn't mean that the Bible's endorsing this society. We're not expected to adopt a patriarchal system for our own. God's added legislation of the system in the law of Moses should be seen as God limiting this structure. He added his morality to an already existing system. In fact, God directly contradicting the patriarchal system's expectations is often seen in the Old Testament. It's part of him confounding the wisdom of man. For example, God routinely chose and elevated a younger born son over the firstborn. All of these were, these leaders were those that should not have become leaders within the patriarchal society. And yet we're told that God sees the heart of man and does it anyways. Uh, God forced the patriarchal society to think and operate outside of its structure. So God's not endorsing the structure itself, but working despite it, just as he can do for each one of us. Absolutely fascinating to understand how God moves in a society or a culture, not that he's endorsing it. Yeah. And there's several cultures in the Bible. He's not endorsing it. He's just, he's bringing his morality into it. Yes. And using that. That's great, Corey. Thank he's you so speaking much. speaking their language. Yeah, he is. Yeah. And, and he does that even today. So that's amazing. Ryan? All right, well, in today's scriptural assignment, we read about the aftermath of the global flood, which took place in Genesis 6 through 9. And you know, it's interesting to note that these particular chapters, chapters 6 through 9, were the central part of a great debate that raged in 19th century Britain. The debate was over the scientific field of geology, and the big question was, how should the rock formations, now known formally as the geologic column, be interpreted? In 19th century Britain, there raged a great debate over the scientific field of geology. Geologist H. H. Reed explains why this was inevitable. Geology, as the science of Earth history, is prone to controversy. The study of history of any kind depends upon documents and records. For the history of the Earth's crust, these documents are the rocks, and the reading and interpretation are often difficult operations. These so-called historical documents of geology are now collectively referred to as the geologic column, which really is just a graphic representation of the layers of rock that make up the Earth's crust. But as Reed points out, the controversy is not over the rocks themselves, but over their interpretation. How then should these rock layers be interpreted? Actually, most of the original pioneers of geology believed the rock layers were laid down rapidly as a result of the Noahic Flood. For example, the concept of mapping and explaining rock layers began with Nicholas Steno. Steno set forth the basic rules followed by geologists today when examining field evidence. He actually based his reasoning on the biblical account of the Flood and accepted that the Earth was only about 6,000 years old. Other geologists and theologians of that time period also interpreted the rock layers and fossils therein 
as largely having been the result of Noah's flood. In fact, the general belief of that time was that a major catastrophe had shaped the earth. However, as time went on, this biblical worldview began to be willfully rejected, and by the 19th century, in what many refer to as the Age of Enlightenment, human reason had become the ultimate authority. Two key figures advocating this new worldview were Scottish geologists James Hutton and Charles Lyell, who is considered the father of geology. Building off the ideas of Hutton, Lyell, seeing it as his mission to free the science from Moses, developed the principle of uniformitarianism, which teaches that the present is the key to the past. In other words, only the slow processes of erosion and sedimentation observed today should be invoked to explain the rock layers. Based on this interpretation, the geologic column would require hundreds of millions of years to form. Though Hutton and Lyle were met with some resistance, eventually their ideas came to dominate geologic thinking, and the Bible was thrown out of geology completely. Sadly, many theologians were quick to adopt these old earth ideas and reinterpret scripture to align with the thinking of man. Interestingly, in 2 Peter 3, the Apostle warned that in the last days, scoffers would willfully forget three things. First, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Second, the creation. And third, the global flood. In reality, this is not a scientific debate at all, but a religious one, and it continues to this day. Therefore, like the early pioneers of geology, we too must stand firm on the Word of God and acknowledge that creation and the flood were real events and that the majority of the geologic column is a very real record of those events. So this all comes down to one's interpretation of the data. If the rock layers were laid down by way of present processes, as secular scientists claim, then this would represent hundreds of millions of years. But if they were mostly laid down as a result of the year-long global catastrophe that Genesis records, then these rock layers would only represent a short amount of time. Now, which interpretation best fits the facts? Well, first off, let me just say that if you're a believer, then quite frankly, you should be believing what God's word says. God's word, not man's word, should be your ultimate authority. And it says very clearly in Genesis and other places that there was a flood and that it was global in extent. Now, what's exciting is that the hard data does support the biblical account. While it is true that there are scientific challenges to both interpretations, since there is still a lot to learn, the trend in geological research is towards consideration of catastrophic processes. Evidence that these layers were laid down rapidly is seen in the lack of erosion between layers and the fine preservation of layers. Also, the fossils were clearly buried rapidly, as some didn't even have time to swallow their meal or finish giving birth. And most importantly, there are examples of modern formations which have been formed very, very quickly. Now, unfortunately, I'm out of time for now, but if you're interested in further study or you want to review this information, then you can find today's segment on my YouTube channel, which is just my name, Ryan Hembry. And I encourage you to subscribe because I'm going to be uh, posting videos regularly on that channel. Very, very good. It's Ryan Hembry on YouTube. So it's very good. Uh, and both of you done an outstanding job. I'm learning 
I'm learning from you. So that's awesome. <laughs> Me yeah. too. It's, it's great awesome. to be sitting here at this table. So thank you so much yes. for all of your information. And for you who are joining us with this program, maybe you've never seen this program before. And I'm so delighted that you're here early on, the very first week of broadcast in 2023. What we do is we go through the Bible in a year. It's a quick study, which is the program name that it used to be. And now it's Bible Discovery. And we are so glad to be discovering the Bible with you all year long. And today we're in Genesis chapter 11, and it's talking about the Tower of Babel. And this verse stuck out to me. It's Genesis 11, verse 4, and it says, And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth, which is exactly what God had told humanity to do. Be fruitful and multiply and go across the world. This is what we're to do, not to group together. And so God wanted people to do what he had asked them to do. So we need to build our foundation on the rock. Do you remember that song when you were little? Maybe you went to Sunday school about the wise man and the foolish man. The foolish man built his house on the sand, but the wise man built his house upon the rock. And the song goes on to say that when the rains came and the floods came, his house stood firm. But the foolish man who built his house on the sand, when those same rains and winds came, his house collapsed because the foundation shifted in the sand. God is that rock. His word is the foundation that we can build our lives upon. And that's what we are all about here. Uh, Rod and myself, husband and wife, and our two oldest children, Ryan and Corey, and we together, our son and our staff, we really are a, a family together. And each one of us has been changed through God's word in our life. This program is based on Psalm 107.20. He sent his word to heal us and deliver us from our destructions. We have a lot of destructive tendencies in ourselves, don't we? But God has sent his word and his word we know from John 1 is the living word, which is Jesus who came in the flesh. And this is who we have dedicated our lives to. We want to bring you the word of God as we learn together. As Rod says, we're learning sitting here, listening to our children teach us. And what a blessing that is. And so we can together sharpen ourselves. We can get into the word and have a relationship with God. That's what it's all about. Not rules and regulations. It is obedience to God. Yes, absolutely. But it's done because we commit our lives to follow him. Why? Because we love him. Why? Because he first loved us and gave himself for us to forgive us of our sins and to bring that relationship back together with him. So I hope that you join us this year and you commit to read through the Bible with us and learn together. We're going to grow together in God's word. We're going to build our foundation on his word so that when the tough times come and they'll come, maybe you're in a tough time right now. Know this, you are not alone. God is with you. God loves you. And he will help you in those times. Build your life upon him. I want to tell you that uh, a marker that you can find our YouTube is at Pastor Rod Hembry, 
at Pastor Rod Hembry on YouTube. Search it and find out. We do our answers from Bible questions. We do all of that there. So make sure you join us and find out what's going on. We also post the prayer meetings there, which are Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 3.30 4.30. Now today we need to pray and say, Lord, help me to tell others about who you really are. And you've saved us. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.